Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, this is Zivi Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. I need your help. If you love this podcast, you will love my children's book. It's called Princess Charming, and I am really trying to drum up pre-order sales. You might not know this, but before a book comes out is actually a really important time for the whole book's trajectory. So please pre-order Princess Charming, which comes out April 19th today. Just stop what you're doing and go do that, please. When it arrives on April 19th, you can give it to a loved one in your life, a niece, a grandchild, a child, a student, a kid walking by on the street, anybody. But if you could do this, here is my offer. If you email me your receipt showing me that you bought the book online somewhere and pre-ordered it, email info at zibbyowens.com. That's info at zibbyowens.com. And I will pick 10 people to do a special giveaway project award too from my new Bonfire merch store, which you should also check out, which is um, the Zibby Owens Media Bonfire store where you can get all sorts of cool t-shirts and uh, tote bags and author sayings and all sorts of great stuff. So what did I say? 10 of you are going to get a special care package of your choice from the Bonfire store. And I will pick at random from all of you who pre-order the book. So if that wasn't clear, Go pre-order Princess Charming. Again, it's called Princess Charming. It's my debut picture book. It's really cute and great, and it's illustrated by Holly Haddam. And then after you get the receipt, screenshot it or forward it to me at info at zibbyowens.com, and you will be entered to win one of 10 exciting care packages. So go off and order. Thank you so much. Bye. 
Lee Newman is the author of Nobody Gets Out Alive Stories. Lee is also my business partner. We co-founded Zibby Books together, and I feel this mix of just pride and excitement and just such warm feelings when I talk about Lee, and I'm just so thrilled about her book, which is absolutely gorgeous. Okay, here's her official bio. Lee Newman's memoir about growing up in Alaska, Still Points North, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. Her new collection, Nobody Gets Out Alive, includes stories that have appeared in Harper's, The Paris Review, The Best American Short Stories, Tin House, Electric Literature, and McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. In 2020, she was awarded a Pushcart Prize and the American Society of Magazine Editors Fiction Prize, as well as received the Paris Review's Terry Southern Prize for Human Wit and Brezzatura. It says she lives in the woods of Connecticut with two dogs, two chickens, a cat, and a few feral kids. But I also know she lives in New York because I see her often. And it doesn't say here, but she used to be at Oprah doing all the books coverage. And prior to that, she founded Catapult, or she founded Black Balloon, which became Catapult Publishing, and now is a co-founder with me of Zivi Books. Listen in on our great chat. Welcome, Lee. Thank you so much for coming on, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to Discuss Nobody Gets Out Alive, Story Collection. Thank you, Zibby. <laughs> this is so funny doing a podcast with you because obviously we work together all the time and this is like in a whole new way. So this is I know. So we can't pretend that we don't know each other. I know. Like, how are, I, who are you? Like, I what's, know. What's your story? I know. But <laughs> it's kind of better though because I feel like I can I can tell you real things. I mean, I guess I can tell real things to anyone, but no, you've like that. known me for a while and like you've seen me work really hard on this book and it didn't just come out of nowhere. Just like I've watched you with all the reiterations of your memoir and one version and then another version and the draft and the cover, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it's kind of a special podcast for me. When we were in LA and you're like, I'm going up to my room. I'm just going to write. I'm going to write. I'm going to like work on stuff. Goodbye. You know, I know it's true. <laughs> and now it's like a book. I mean, I couldn't have been, but you know, yeah. it's just, I know I am one of those people though. It's like, I can be public and have a great time with a friend, but then the time, like my whole body goes into shutdown mode. Yeah. And that, like, I need those three hours in the morning where I don't talk to people and I just write. But it's amazing. And at night, too. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, you can, t- and you're such, I mean, obviously I know you're an amazing editor, which is oh. why you're the editor-in-chief of Zibby Books and yeah. why I trust you more than anyone on the entire planet to edit. But you are such a good writer. I mean, oh my God, you're such you. a good writer. The, the Alcon, an oral history, like, short, not short story. It's not even a short story. It's a story. I know. It's I, a, cannot, I was like, this is a novel. I just read like a whole novel in here and I wanted more. I cannot believe they let me do that. Honestly, I'm surprised that someone didn't say that's not a short. Yeah, I like, mean, it's because like, it started. So I'll just explain what yeah, it is because yeah. other people, don't, but it's five parts, right? And it's a road trip of five different people from different perspectives. And when I really started to do, it was like, I'm really fascinated by the Elkan because it's this huge, long, historic highway that goes between Alaska and the lower 48. I drove it with my dad a long time ago and we had a really good time. Actually, we were driving this big truck and, and we had, a, it was the opposite of this trip where these people are suffering. It was like, yeah. but I did like, there were weird moments on that trip where you'd realize if we don't get gas, you know, we're going to end up abandoned on the side of the road because there's just not any more gas for like 250 miles you know, and I grew up in Alaska in the bush, you know, like I grew up where in a different time too, where like you'd be in a plane and we would fly into the middle of these remote areas and there's, there was no cell phones and there was no satellite phones. There was just nothing. So if you got in trouble, like you could set off a beacon and we did get in trouble like on quite a few occasions, 
or you just had to figure your way out of that situation. But I had not spent a lot of time in a car because there's no roads in Alaska. So driving the Alcan was like actually kind of a new experience for me because I'm not used to being in a car in areas where there's not like human habitation. I know that's a strange thing to say. So when I started writing the story, I knew I wanted to have a lot of like female people because I feel like a lot of times when we're talking about the wilderness or we're talking about the frontier of Alaska or the frontier of the West, it's a male narrative. It's a cowboy narrative. And I wanted it to be about women because I am one. And that's my experience. And it's the experience of a lot of girls who grew up with me in Alaska. And so I started with a with a mother with two kids and then I had two best friends and every 20 pages I would switch until it ended up being like an 80 page story. Yeah. And I don't really know how that happened, but it did. But so good. Thank you. So good. And also having read your memoir, Still Points North, when you see literally like taking off to like go getting salmon and you know yeah. flying in a plane just with your dad and doing yeah. all these I, I would say outdoorsy, but that demeans it in a lot of ways. No, that's all right. For a New Yorker, we'll call it yeah. <laughs> outdoorsy lifestyle. And then to see this, like I was, I, I'm glad you said that about your dad. Cause I was like, is this something that happened to Lee? Like, oh yeah, no, no, it's totally fiction. Yeah. I actually, I, I did write that memoir and I'm glad I wrote it. Like I don't have any regrets. And I really liked the seven or eight years I spent basically, I mean, just writing nonfiction, right? Like I wrote the memoir, I worked at Oprah and I wrote like essays every week and I wrote things in the New York Times and it was like validated and made me feel like a writer. And it actually was there are advantages to both kinds of writing. But I think I like finished writing for nonfiction. Like I wrote one essay for this book that's going to come out, I think, next week with Oprah. But fiction is like you can make things up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't have to worry about telling the truth. And with nonfiction writing, that can be a lot of pressure. I'm sure you felt like that memoir. Like, how do I make this moment true? What happens if I get it wrong? Why can't I just make this story more exciting? But actually in fiction, I was like, oh my God, I'm free. Mm. You know what I mean? I need a moment here and I don't have one in my own personal life. So I'm going to make it up and I'm allowed, you know? And for me, that was like, wow. You know, like I really enjoyed it. See, I feel like that's also intimidating. Like oh, you can yeah. just make it up. It could be anything in the world. Like you could make up anything. Yeah, it is. If, for- if you have the con- the confines of like your actual life story, then you can like pick it and, you know, it's like decorating a house versus building one from scratch. I totally agree. I think that's what I, that's why nonfiction was easier for me at right. first. Like yeah. this is not my first try at fiction. Right. Like no, I, I wrote a story collection that a lot of the stories had been published, but wasn't didn't feel like a book to me. So I never even submitted that anywhere. And- then I wrote a novel that was truly awful. <laughs> I did. I can't help it. I had like two kids and I was writing a novel. I think the writing was good, but the, the story was not together. And so like when I went to, into memoir, it was a relief. Like there's some guardrails here. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like and I don't have to come up with the plot. And there is even now in fiction times, you're like, anything could happen. Oh my God. Anything could happen. How do I narrow it down? Right? So I think... One trick I've learned is that, and I'm not sure if I've, I've, I really know this or not, it's like coming to me right the second, I've never thought about it before, is that if you, the guardrails of the story are what you create in those first like seven or eight pages, right? And so like, if you're running a story about a trip up the, this remote highway through Canada with a mother and daughter, then maybe a Martian will not come into that story. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> anything could happen. And I guess maybe a UFO could come into it. But probably not. Probably I'm just going to stick with the mother and daughter. So I think that's how you keep it from becoming paralyzing and overwhelming, or at least that's how I'm going to, 
even within the realm of no realm of no UFOs, no vampires. I would probably say, you know, in a road trip story too, no car crashes. Cause it's like, that's too obvious or something mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. and also it's too unwieldy. What do I do with a car crash? Right. You know, like do people die? It, I don't know why that feels harder to deal with than just people having their regular drama of, you know, in this case, the mother is overwhelmed by a child with special needs and a little bit, I want to say a little bit abusive, maybe yeah. not, you know, yeah. and these two friends who are also traveling, two best friends. I actually really wanted to write about best friends because I that was my favorite. And certainly that's the longest narrators in the that long story because I just remember how in love I have been with my friends. And, you know, in your 20s, yes. I mean, I do know that you know because <laughs> I read your memoir. <laughs> and even in my grade school or like in high school, I had this friend, Katie Maddie. I just, I was in love with her. Yeah. You know, everything she said was funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, we used to laugh so hard. I still have friends <laughs> like that. My best friend, Elizabeth, I literally, I, I get hurt laughing when I'm with her. And I, I always know that I'm in love with someone when I laugh at everything they say. And it takes a while. Like, we'll be friends for a year. And then all of a sudden, just everything they say, you could say something like, let's put some coffee in the coffee machine. I'd be like, oh my God, to me. <laughs> you know, like, it's just how I understand love. And I do feel like a lot of times I see it as, you know, that like love should only be romantic or love should only be sexual or love should only be about marriage. And I mean, there are so many, obviously, stories about marriage in this collection. Mm -hmm. Okay, I would say that's 90% of the book. And maybe that's why I carved out this space to talk about female friendship when you're, you know, 21 years old and like the world is so huge and you don't know what you're doing. You know, those girls to me felt like, you know, we're going to go to Alaska. And they had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. It, <laughs> it was so funny though. When, when they were at the, when they were at the restaurant and one of them was said, what did she say? Like, are these clams fresh? And the waitress is like, oh, okay. Now I know what I'm dealing with here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's true. Cause there's like, no, we, the first thing when you go to remote Alaska or Canada, it's like, they're going to give you Nescafe. I don't know what that is. I also hear that it happens in Africa and like other places I've traveled in Asia. Like the coffee is Nescafe, instant crystals. Yeah. There's going to be powdered milk. You know what I mean? Everything is canned, you know, and there's like these certain foods you just know, oh, okay, I'm home. Wow. Well, I still found the ending, unpredict- like I would not have predicted the ending of the story. Yeah. It, it seriously felt like a whole novel in and of itself. And I found myself relating to all the different people in the story Aww. and almost like, I mean, the mother is really struggling. And I think for any moms who are struggling with anything, you reach that breaking point, right? Where you're right. just like, I need to go. We have to get to school on time. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Like I can physically still pick you up. So I'm going to just like grab yeah. you and like, we've got to get out of the house. And I feel like for many parents, you're always sort of on that line of like losing it and yeah. wanting to just like snap yourself because it's so out of your control, right? Like your kid's behavior can sometimes just, you know, you just, it. They don't do what you want them to do. Well, listen to me. I'm telling you that I have one of the most haunting moments of my entire life was in skiing. And my son was like, my, my older son is such a sweetheart. Like he's the sweetest boy in the world. And as a, and he was a very easy child. Like when he was like three, I mean, his brother was not, his brother drove me to insanity. And I love that kid, but pushed me right to the edge <laughs> of like personality disorder. Like, ah, but my older son was such a sweetheart. And we were skiing and we, we somehow got on something that was difficult. And he was maybe three or four. And it's very steep and it was icy. And I was like, well, we have, I mean, I grew up in Alaska, right? Like everything was life or death. Like, and I said, well, we have to ski down it. And he was like, 
well, I just want to take off my skis. And I literally, Zippy, I lost my crap on a level. I was like, there's no such thing as taking off your skis. You cannot walk down this mountain and I cannot leave you here. And I I went on and on. I was like one of those crazy people. I feel like I should have been arrested for talking to this kid. And of course he made perfect sense. He was afraid. Take off the skis, walk down. I couldn't envision a reality where like you could just take off your skis and mm-hmm. walk down a mountain. Everything to me was like, and so I've actually apologized like once a year. I'll be like, remember that time I yelled at you when I was king? I'm so sorry. I was so wrong. He thinks it's funny now. And it was, but I remember being unable to like make a good choice because I was so blinded by my frustration and my fear and my, my past. And, you know, I just wasn't in reality. I don't think. And I think that's for her too. I mean, this mother has like economic pressure. She's yep. got no money. She's there like, her kid has all these problems. It's the seventies. Like no yep. one's diagnosed them and he's really problematic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of that stuff actually is, you know, like there's always this intersection between fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Like, how did I know about, I waited tables. That's how I knew from the waitress. Right. And the road trip. Yes. I took a road trip with my dad down the Alcan, but most of the pressure that mm-hmm. I would think of from the road, our road trip was like a happy, like, oh, let's stop and, you know, have a burger. But I used to take these crazy road trips with my mother because she was really into driving. Like, she'd be like, I woke up this morning. I thought we should go to the Grand Tetons. We lived in Baltimore. <laughs> I was like, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she would drive all the way to the Tetons. We would get out and look at the Tetons. And then we would get back in the car and drive all the way home. Oh, my gosh. I know. I'm not into road trips for that reason. My kids this morning, literally, uh, my daughter said to me on the way to school, she was like, what's a joy ride? And I was I, like, well, a joy ride is like when you go in the car for no reason and just to have fun. And she was like, looking at me like, what? I know. <laughs> Isn't that weird? People used to do that. Like on Sunday afternoons, they'd be like, let's go for a drive and look at the country. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. I don't ever want to like, do that. Not having a destination. Like, <laughs> blew her mind. Like, then why would we be in the I car? I even have trouble taking a walk without a destination. Yeah. Like, I will organize an errand. I'll be like, yeah. okay, let's go for a walk. We'll walk the dog because I have all these dogs. And I'll stop at the dry cleaner. You know what I mean? And I'll pick up something at the pharmacy and then I'll come back home. That's a walk to me when I, you know. Yeah. If not, it's a hike, right? I will go on a hike. That's, that's a different thing. But the hike has a top of the mountain, right? Like, that's yes. a goal-oriented thing. Like, you get up there and reach the top and you go back down. It's not yep. just like an amble. Yeah. I, like just people, going for a walk seems like, I know. where would you go? How long would you go? No. like It's like weathering heights. Yeah. No, I'm, I have the landmark in mind. Yeah. And then as I go, I'm like, okay, I'm here. So I'm But that's like, part of why you're a writer. Because I do think when you're writing, you want to think that you can amble all over the page. But like, I mean, so one of the things I really think is super important in a short story or even in that long story is pressure on the story so that you want to turn pages, that you mm-hmm. care. Yep. Like it was a serious goal for me. You know, the three things I wanted of of our books we publish Mm -hmm. and any book I publish is I want for myself, I want there to be beautiful sentences and language. And I want there to be a story, like a reason, like, you know, do they get to the restaurant? Do they run out of gas? You know, do they pick up those two girl hitchhikers? Or in every case, and that's a question of like really plot and story. Like people don't, like real storytelling and then like, I want it to have like a lot of heart or that's what I call heart. It's not a great word. It's not very literary word, okay. but I want there to be like emotional stakes. Like I want someone to feel sad or I want them to laugh or mm-hmm. both. Actually, what I want is both. Mm-hmm. Like I'm really going for a kind of humor, which is you're laughing, you're laughing, you're laughing, and then you're devastated. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's like the, the 
best story. Well, no, there's not. I mean, I like all the babies. <laughs> I love all the babies. But I mean, the one that's gotten the most public attention is the story Hal Palace. And that was one that, you know, it won this Paris Review Prize. And I think it was in Best American Short Stories. Mm-hmm. And it was in, I, I mean, it's embarrassing how much one's, you know, um, it's like my my little baby, you know, my little yeah. protege story that went off without me and said, ha, 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 yeah. I'm going to Harvard or something, <laughs> you know, like, but that little story, you know, won all these prizes. And I think I can't tell you how hard I worked on that story. I worked on that story for, I want to say like six or seven years. And many of the versions of the story ha- have zero. I mean, it's not even the same people. The only thing is the same about that story with Hal Palace is the dog that uh, there's this, you know, like crazy lab Rador and it's wrecking everything in this woman's yard, but there were different women. There were neighbors involved. I mean, there's still neighbors involved with the dog, but when I finally cracked it open, it was because I found that it was like this old woman who had this dog and then, and it was funny. She was a funny old lady. She had, had five husbands, you know, like she was like serving moose hot dogs to people who wanted to buy her house and you were laughing. And then I don't even think I realized how sad it was until the end. And then I wrote the sad ending and everyone keeps saying when they say, oh, that ending is such a surprise. Well, that, that was a surprise to me too, you know, but I think most of like really funny writing, like when I read David Sedaris and I laugh so hard, but then it's also really sad. Mm-hmm. You know, like they thought he had a speech impediment just because he's, you know what I mean? Like they really, you know, his school was awful to him and it was hard life, you know, or he had that really like thought provoking essay about the pedophile who lived in his French town where you're like laughing and then you're like, gross. Yeah. You know, that's so upsetting. So I, I do think I have veered into that territory. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's like we were talking about yesterday in terms of like a book, books to acquire and short yeah. stories and editing and whatever. And you're like, no, no, no. A short story is a whole nother thing. Yeah. It is the hardest thing to edit. You have to be so careful with the words and the plot and you yeah. don't have as much space and you have to be so careful. And I just love that, right? Yeah. Like the attention you have to, and then how you can just like keep doing it over and over again with the stories in this collection. Well, I do feel like it's a little bit like music, right? So you figure out the form and in that, you know, in a good story, I like to, I usually like, well, I'm just like, I like to start, I always start with like a really, like I, I always start with a sentence. Mm-hmm. So like, and, and it's gotta be a sentence to me that goes, oh, there's, it's not a sentence about character or what's happening. I'm trying to find the story. Nobody goes out alive, but I don't even know what page that's on. Um, this opening sentence is my brother and I didn't grow up religious. Yeah. Nobody gets out alive is getting past the mastodon took planning. Right. Getting past the mastodon took planning. Well, I already have a mastodon, right? I have a woolly mammoth in the first sentence. Well, there's a lot of places to go with that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like a mastodon is interesting to me. And I don't even know what a mastodon is. Well, is that embarrassing? No, that's actually something that is surfacing. Like part of that story was talking about like global warming in Alaska. And it is true all of these dinosaur bones are surfacing right on the snow and you can literally pick them up. You don't have to dig for them or anything because the the ice is melting. And throughout the collection, I was at each story a little bit talking about global warming and like what's happened with oil culture, just because the landscape has so radically altered. Like when I grew up in Alaska, like there was no such thing as spring. We call it the breakup. Like we lived on a lake and the ice would break up and it would go out to sea. I really do want to write a novel called The Breakup. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of an obvious metaphor, right? Like if it was about a marriage that broke up, but, and it still does that. It's just that it would be like winter would last sometimes till the end of May, the beginning of June. 
And now comes so much easier. Like I was at the Arctic Circle two years ago and the breakup was happening in like April. Where was that? You know, my brother was like, don't bring your, you know, ski pants. Like it's warm out. There's no snow on the ground. And I, I was bewildered. And the same thing with the summers. Like the summers are really hot now. There was, you know, that same summer, I think it was like 90 degrees. That n- never, never happened. And we certainly just, the one thing that I totally freaks me out is that we just did not have fall. Like there'd be like three days in August, all the leaves would fall. There's very few leafy trees, but when those leafy trees that we had in our yard, they would literally fall off in about two days. And that was the end of fall. And all of a sudden it was winter and snow started falling. And now there's a real fall and it's really pretty. You know, when you go hiking, it's like vibrant and red leaves and mushrooms. And it's like, it's, that's actually September is a great time to go to Alaska because the tourists are gone. You can go hiking and you can go fly fishing. And if you're, you know, there's, it's a beautiful time to look at the landscape, but it always freaks me out a little bit. That's I, that's what I did write about the, the fact that we have a fall and it lasts weeks now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. It's just so crazy to me that this is how you grew up, and yet here you are just like bouncing around New York City. I know me too. I find it very weird. You know, it's like you, like if you were wearing like, you know, like an Alaskan type outfit, right? As yeah, I imagine, yeah, like, yeah. you know, with the boot, like some sort of boots and 
you know, flat. You would know that like you came from somewhere else. I know. But you look like everybody else. Do you know what I, I know. Mean? I mean, I looked at, when I came to New York, I said, oh, look at, I mean, you, you didn't know me when I first came to New York. I mean, I was a rube. I still am a rube at heart. I mean, I feel like people look at me even no matter what. I've got the clothes. I know how to, I know how to handle myself. And I mean that in the best of ways that I will always be a rube. And I'm, I actually like that about myself. You know, I don't want to change that much. But I really didn't know, like, I was so bewildered on how to dress and what to do. I did not understand anything for, like, my first five years here. And I I remember, like, I tried to get a job, and this woman who was at the publishing house, I was soon to be fired because I was the world's worst assistant, but one of the very successful assistants was like, we're all going to Chappie this weekend. I didn't know what she was talking about. I, I, I was, like, buying clothes at, like, the Salvation Army or, like, random chain stores like strawberries and, like, kind of just putting it. <laughs> I know, like, I didn't know what to do. And it's it's okay. Like, I kind of embrace that, like, part of me, you know? Wait, so go, wait, explain you. So you grew up alternating somewhat, your mom in Baltimore, your dad in Alaska. Right. You went to Stanford. But like, what, how did this all, how did you get, what's the quick version of your life story here? Well, I really lived in Alaska until I was about eight or nine. Mm -hmm. And then my mom, you know, my mom and dad divorced. And my mom, on a crazy road trip, drove me out of Alaska to Baltimore. Yep. But that road trip was even crazier. Like, we went to Mexico and everything. She's, she just loves to drive. She always says, like, I should have been a trucker. I'm like, get me out of the car. Have you read Mother Trucker? No, but I got to read that. Oh, my God. I'm going to give it to you. Okay. It's, anyway, okay. you're going to love it. Okay. So, and so from that point on, I would live every three months with my mom and then go to my dad and then go back to my mom and go back to my dad. And, you know, school was arranged, so I mostly went to high school in Baltimore. But when I was with my dad, my dad was like, oh my God, you're here. And you've had to be living in that, you know, what he would call like the East Coast elites. And I love him, but he was like, not the East Coast elites. And he'd be like tossing me into an airplane and we were going caribou hunting and we were going fishing in remote areas and we were going rafting down these crazy rivers. And we were like, he'd be like, I remember one summer he's like, I bought this cabin. And it's true. Like we lived really off grid. Like we had a cabin in the middle of the wilderness and he was like, and now we're going to build it. We're going to build a sauna. I was, And we would just go into the lake and collect rocks and there's this thing called Visqueen. It's plastic sheeting. And we made this big kind of pyramid of plastic sheeting. And we found an old barrel stove from an abandoned hunter's cabin. And we set that up. And we we literally just made this sauna. And, and an Alaskan sauna is you go sit under this Visqueen and you pour hot water <laughs> over yourself and the steam comes up. It's actually really amazing. But it's not like the saunas that you're going right. to see in yeah. civilized Norway or, you know, like, mm-hmm. the, you know, with the people with the beating sticks. But we we lived that kind of life, and I think he was really, really committed to me not forgetting how I grew up mm-hmm. and not becoming this kind of person that, you know, could not handle herself. You know, I learned how to shoot a gun at a very young age, like five or six. I, I thought that I learned how when I was eight or nine, but my dad was like, no, because, you know, it was, the bears were a very real thing, you know? Like, I've never had to kill a bear, thank God, and I've never been attacked by a bear, and your first impulse when you have a bear is, of course, not to shoot it. You don't want to kill an animal, but you want to back out of there, which I've done many times, many, many times. Been like, oh, hello, Mr. Grizzly. You are also on this river with me. I will just now be backing away. And quite frankly, against all like what they say that you're supposed to do, I have run my butt off. <laughs> I have just been like, oh my God. That feeling never changes when you run into a giant brownie fishing and it looks at you and says, oh, hello, you just run. I have run so many times that I'm truly embarrassed and I don't know why I'm alive. 
But I think he, you know, there's times like we had a bunch of situations where like I'd be left alone at camp or, you know, especially behind our cabin, there was just so many brown bears. Even just to get to the outhouse, you know, you'd walk through these raspberry bushes and I was always singing. I love to sing Christmas carols. I love Christmas in general. I'm not, I, and I'd love to sing Christmas carols, but as a kid, I would sing Christmas carols or like show tunes from Evita. <laughs> I love the Evita record. I don't, Kenny Rogers just so that they would know that you're coming. So you wouldn't like go through the bushes and then run into them because they don't really want to be involved with you. Um, And that's also, also really changed. You know, when I was little, when we were living in so many remote areas, the bears were not aware of you as a food source. Mm. They did not want much to do with you. And if they did, it was like, I remember one time we woke up and like this black bear was kind of just like pawing at our tent. And I can't believe this is true. I'm going to tell you the truth. My dad and I were like, oh, let's go back to sleep. We literally went back to sleep <laughs> and it went away. We were really tired. It was really early in the morning. We knew he was there and he was going, oh, oh, oh. That's what they sound like. <laughs> and it's not like we were la- laissez-faire, but we actually love to sleep. You know that about me. I got up at a 10, I wake up at eight. And my dad's the same way. I mean, at 7.30, he's like, well, that was a big day. <laughs> and um, in the morning, I think it must've been, you know, five in the morning. We were like, well, I'm too tired to deal with that. <laughs> But now, so the last, I did this article on this guy, Dick Prenicky, who built this, he's a famous guy on NPR. He did this Alone in the Wilderness documentary about building his own cabin. And I hiked out and stayed in his cabin and I was alone in the wilderness. And there are bears everywhere there. But they have learned what people are. Mm. And they love things like toothpaste. (laughs) They do. It's food to them. It's got sugar in it. You know, they know what tinfoil is. So you have to be so much more careful about, you know, we would just sort of like tie our food up in a tree. I'm embarrassed that we traveled like this, but, or we would open up a float in our plane, just kind of dump our salmon in there and it'd cool off in the water. I mean, nowadays I feel like a bear would be like, you know, thank you. I'm going to just eat your plane. I'm going to eat all that salmon too, you know, because, you know, it's easier for me to, you know, some humans have put so much garbage and they have so much more access too. You know, like many people in Alaska have helicopters now and they can get into all these places that you can't with a small plane. And also tourists, I think there's just so much more tourists that are coming up, which is, you know, that's good for the state. That's good. But, and there's also just more roads. Like people go hunting on the road now. They like just drive, they get out of their car, they put on a vest and they go caribou hunting. And there's not that many caribou left. And the caribou see the people coming and they're like, we're running away from you now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you think, goodbye. You think you don't hear it's that really hard to, It's really hard to, you know, when I grew up, you always hunted a caribou and you ate that for winter. And it wasn't, I mean, I, I'm not like a bloodthirsty, like hunter. Like I would never, I would only hunt things that you would eat. But we grew up where you'd go out in your plane, you'd get out, you'd walk to the caribou and you'd kill the caribou. And they did not really know who you were. And there was like hundreds of them. It's like cows. It's like, and we would process that meat and make hot dogs out of it and hamburgers. We had a big freezer and we ate it all winter. And, you know, that wasn't weird. That was like normal life. Now I feel like that's changed. I mean, we don't, my dad doesn't do that anymore. And I certainly don't do it. I'm also, I'm going to tell you, I'm not really into hunting. <laughs> I'm not good at it and I'm not committed. But we also used to go duck hunting. We shot all our own ducks and that still goes on. And we eat, we ate all our own food. And my dad was always like, you know, this was long before this like new movement that I now in New York, I guess people are like, it's eat the whole animal. But we did like, 
we ate everything on the animal and then we saved a skin and we dried the skin and we made a carpet out of it or we made a hat. Oh my gosh. We did. We did. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I've made my kids pluck ducks with me. I want them to understand how to like, that the food just doesn't come to you out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And if they want to be like one, one of my sons is probably going to be a vegetarian. I can, that's been heading towards me and I'm okay with that. I support him. He's like, right now he's pretty much a vegetarian except for he bacon. And okay, fine, whatever. I'm like, you're not really a vegetarian. You understand that, right? Because you eat bacon, but whatever. That's the, the little lie we live with. But I do want them to understand what food is and that it doesn't just like spit out of a, out of a whole foods. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, Wegmans. Yeah. You know, and it was scary for them to like take the feathers off the duck and then clean it and then eat it. And you know, do that. Even my, and we did that with grandpa too. And he was like, it is a little scary now that I think about it. (laughs) But I remember him having, we'd have huge fights, especially when my teenage years, when I was like, you're a killer, you're an animal killer. And I totally, I became a vegetarian for like five years. Oh God, poor man was pulling out his hair. And I would sit outside and he'd say, well, you have to pluck the ducks. You know, you're the youngest person in the family. That's, that person does that. And I would just sit out there with duck after duck, hating everybody. You know how you're, when you think in the garage. I mean, I was like shucking corn. So we had Yeah, that's a what I'm saying. <laughs> well, it's the same thing. You're like, nobody loves me. <laughs> I have to do all the hard work around here. And my dad's a killer of birds. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, but still, mm-hmm. how, okay. so how did you get from that lifestyle? Oh, okay. So then here. when I went, yeah. Okay. So my dad had a rule when I, when it t- was time to go to college. I mean, there's, you can go to college in Alaska. And one of my brothers did his master's in Fairbanks, but my dad has kind of like these rules, which I think a lot of dads, you know, do or parents do. And he was like, you are not, you need to go to a big college and you need to go someplace else in the world. Like it cannot really be on the East coast, like, like the environment that your mother had and it cannot be Alaska. So I chose California. I applied to every school in California. There's not a single one I did not apply to. And I'm also nervous and I was nervous about getting into college and it, you know, it all worked out really well for me to my astonishment. I mean, literally, I, I and I remember my guidance counselor laughed at me when I tell her what I was doing. She was like, what are you, you know what I mean? I was like, I'm just going to do it. What do I have to lose? And when I got to California, I met all these people from New York City. And they were, a lot of them had gone to like these, all different kinds of high schools, you know, and they were also smart and funny. And they also really liked things like writing and theater, which I loved, and there were not very many people at my college that liked the humanities. That you know, it's a very small group. I didn't know that either. I actually did not know what I was doing with colleges. It never occurred to me to like research like what the college was known for. But my college apparently was known for being a doctor, and being a senator, and like being a business person, and being into tech. It was the huge mm-hmm. you know Silicon Valley tech thing, and I'm not good at single one of those things. <laughs> and so I kind of bonded with all these people. And then I would go home during the summers to Alaska and hunt and fish and hike and, and work at like Garcia's restaurant as a waitress, or I'd always have like 95 jobs and a big, I had a big truck that I drove around and my friends would all go to New York city and they would do like internships. Now, I didn't even know you're supposed to do an internship. Like in every, I don't know where I was. I seem to have missed the memo where you figure things out in general, but, and then they would come home and they'd have all these great parties and they, they would all be kissing each other and, <laughs> and, you know, going to someplace called the Dublin house on the Upper West Side. And, and one of them had a big apartment in New York city and, and there was all these pictures and all these shenanigans. And I was like, 
I was like, one day I'm going to get to go to New York and have fun with all of these amazing people. And so when I graduated, I went to New York and not a single one of those people came to New York. (laughs) (laughs) I was like alone here. I had one friend in the whole city, Rohan Sippy. That's it. And he wasn't from New York at all. He was from India and Detroit. So we just kind of, I don't know. I mean, I, I did want to be a writer and I thought, oh, writers go to New York. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true anymore. I think I could have just gone to Alaska or gone to Seattle, stayed in California with the rest of my, you know, class, and it would have been fine. I would have been a writer, but I literally knew nothing about writing. I did not know any writers, okay? I had, like, and even the writing classes they had in the college were, like, I had, like, two or three teachers, and they didn't really engage with you because they they just, it's different now, right? Like, you had to sleep out for the class and there'd be a 12 people. And honestly, I'm going to be honest, my writing was not that good. And so I don't think they were like- I don't really believe you, but- they, okay. they, I don't think oh, any uh, of them thought, oh, let's take <laughs> Lee Newman under her wing and make her my protege. I think they were like, that was nice, dear. Thank you so much. You don't know how to write a story. Go on with you. And I would write in these impassioned emails and they'd be like, thanks. I remember my friend, you know, like, they didn't say like, come or I'll introduce you. I didn't know that the parent, what, I didn't know what literary magazines were. I knew nothing. And maybe that's a good thing. It took me a long time to figure it out longer than it should have. But I just came here and, you know, I worked at Reader's Digest, like in the research, not even the real Reader's Digest, like the part where they just make books on like how to garden. I just did whatever I could that was related to words. I would take any job. And I worked in an antique store, you know. And then somehow you ended up at Oprah. Yeah. Yeah, I worked really hard. (laughs) That's one thing. I think that was different. I think that actually, you know, my work ethic is crazy. You know that. I know that I know your work ethic. I worked really, and I, and I learned, you know, I learned how to magazine edit and I learned how to internet edit. And I learned how to, you know, I think even what I'm talking about with writing stories or with those three qualities I want out of an experience. And I, and I guess the fourth quality for me too, was writing about a world like Alaska that's so fully realized. It's like you went there and you Mm -hmm. come back as a reader. You know, I really wanted that feeling and many people write without setting and they're very good writers, right? They're writing about ideas or, but for me, it's like, I want the full world, you know? And I want to, I want to get just like every sentence should be loaded with smells and with trees and with details and things just unique to that place. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was like that learning process of, you know, learning how to do your job and then learning how to do your job as a writer, you know? I don't know. It's amazing. And then but you I, went from Oprah, you started Catapult. Yeah. And now here we are. It's a yeah. It's I so mean, crazy. I know. It's, it is, it is. It's so awesome. Yeah. I, 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 I think also maybe when you grow up differently, cause like I think about it, right? So I was trying to be a writer and I thought, oh, you go work at a, at a big company and you, and you worked there. But actually that did not work for me very well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think I am totally comfortable with just being like, I mean, I know, I know I'm comfortable cause I've done it. I usually worry extensively before I do it, but yet I've done it over and over again where I'll be in a situation and I'll have learned a lot and then I'm done and I quit. And they're like, where are you going? Where's your new job? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, and then I, you know, starting companies from scratch. Oh, no, don't leave. No, I'm not going to go. <laughs> We're just starting our company. We're just starting our journey. But you and I are making this together. It's yeah. not working for a big company where you're like, okay, I was an associate editor and now I'm going to be a senior right, editor right. and then I'm going to be editor in chief. And I've had those conversations. Mm-hmm. Like at Oprah, they sat me down and said, do you want to be editor in chief one day? And I was like, absolutely not. 
thank you so much for thinking of me. I really appreciate it. I'm so grateful. I would kind of love to do it, but I'm not ready to run a big department and talk to these people and this, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that that involve like emailing and presentations. And you know, I don't know how PowerPoint works. <laughs> you know, like I'm, but when it's your own company, there's all kinds of freedoms and ways to interpret things. And you, you it's so imaginative, right? Like we're imagining what we want out of a, out of a, for our readers, right? Like, and what we want for ourselves and we want what what we want for our team. And it's like, it is very creative. I don't feel like I have to like learn all these skills that I don't want to learn in order to be able to survive and not get fired and say things I don't want to, I don't mean in order to not get fired, which is, I feel like that happens. You know, I want to tell the truth kindly, but I don't want to say things I don't mean. Yeah. Well, we get to make up all the rules. That's true. Pretty cool. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And we get a lot of help from the people that we, you know. Yeah. Okay. So. Last question. And uh-huh. I feel like I've only scratched the surface of your uh-huh. life. I would love to sit here and like <laughs> listen to the whole, we'll have to do like a part two or something for aspiring authors. Yeah. I think you have to fall in love with the form that you're writing in. So I think, I actually think a way to like drill it down and make it so it doesn't take you, tw- like it took me too long to become a writer. I can say that right away. I did not read enough and I did not study enough to figure out how to, I mean, I mean, I was reading, but I wasn't reading in the right way. So for example, when I decided to write this book, I read every book of short stories that have been published pretty much ever. I have hundreds and hundreds of books. And as I was writing it, I only read short stories. And that way the form, even though it has myriads of ways of things kind of got into my consciousness the way if you were writing music, you'd say, am I going to write a symphony or am I going to write a minuet or am I going to write, you know, mm-hmm. an opus? Well, I don't, I don't actually, I'm not in I don't a rap song. Yeah. But yeah. And so that kind of got into my thing. And I, I thought about the stories that I did read and I would call, I called them mother stories and I would go back and look at those stories and, and then it would help me come out with it. And I'm writing a novel now, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm reading and buying every novel. I, like, stagger into bookstores, collect novels, and I read them. And, and, it, and it really is kind of saying, oh, there are similar choices. All these novels are so different. Mm-hmm. But what's the kind of one that I find that does have story, that does have heart, and does have language? It's not enough for me to write an idea book. Mm-hmm. And some people can. They're just... You know, it's like existential, and I want there to be like a beginning, middle, end. I, I want that for mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just studying how people do it, and then and then how would I do it? So I feel like if you want to, if you're an expiring writer, and same thing with memoir. I did not read enough memoirs when I wrote my memoir, and I would have done things differently. Because I feel like you just got to, like, gorge and not be afraid. Because I know I used to be afraid that if I was reading other things by other people, it would affect my voice. But that's not true. Mm-hmm. You have your own voice and it will come through. You know what I mean? Like, yep. and so if I just like, the more I absorb information about what other people are doing, the better I'm able to make the choices I want to make to create the book I want to make. Because I'm, I'm literally learning from the masters, right? Yes. You know? Amazing. Thanks. <laughs> I'm so excited for Nobody Gets Out Alive. It's so good. Thank You're you. such a good writer. It's Thank really you. amazing. And I can't wait for this to be a smash hit. You're a good writer be. too. You are. I can't Thank wait you. for your book. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.